Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Starting at verse 5. And once you have, have it, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Starting at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Excellent. You may be seated. So in, in kind of planning out uh, the, the sermon series, um, I was really struggling last week. Do I do verses 1 through 4 uh, in this series, or do I do something totally new? Because it, it wasn't kind of falling in in my calendar quite the way that I had divided it up. But I thought last week, this, this idea that there is no longer any condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, I thought that is great, uh, po or great Easter news. Man, he has broken the chains. So now, therefore, there is no condemnation. And I felt like it was a great Easter morning to be reminded of that great news. And what great post-Easter post news do we have here? This is normally one of those verses that is preached on Easter. And like Todd said, man, sometimes it's, it's hard to kind of, after all the, the hype and excitement of Easter, to come back on the next week and saying, okay, so what do we do now? So here's a great reminder. Now, one of the things that I think that we all are kind of struggling to do, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, as we look across this world, you look down your street, you, maybe even in your own household, people that you know, people you work with, people you rub elbows with, is you're constantly trying to help people change, right? And some of us more than others. Some of us are control freaks. Do I have any of those here? All right, my wife is the first. Okay, okay, good. There's two of you. The rest of you are lying. All I have to do is ask your best friend or I have to ask your spouse, your kids. Yeah, yeah, they, they love to control me. But part of the, the mission and the hope of a Christian is I want to see people changed. I want to see something magnificent happen in their lives. And I remember going to a seminar, one of the, every year I go to at least one seminar, and I remember in this seminar, it was on helping people. The seminar speaker said something that I wrote down and I 
haven't forgotten. He said this, A man convinced against his will is of the same persuasion still. A man convinced against his will is of the same persuasion still. Do you get what that means? We, we all face this, this kind of reality in various relationships that, that we're in. If you're a friend, if you're a pastor, if you're a parent, you're a boss, you're a coach, a personal trainer, any kind of leader, you've run into this very kind of issue multiple times. And often multiple times in the same day. The challenge behind this quote is the fact that people can always modify their behavior to please or to get through. We can all modify, man, you, you even hear about the hypocrisy in the church. They do one thing here, they say one thing here, but when they're outside, they're a totally different person, right? So we can all kind of morph and change, chameleon, modify our behavior to fit certain things and desires at some level and for some period of time. But if the will of a person is not changed, if your will is not changed, the effect will not last for very long. In other words, without a change of desire, a change of mind, the person will return to his or her former ways, right? It'll, they'll always go back. And you look at them and you go, what? Why are you back at that again? Why are you still talking that way? Why are you still doing this? Why? I thought there was a change. But if there is not a change of the desire, the will, ultimately, we all go back. When we say something like, he just doesn't get it, what are we saying? We're expressing the frustration that, that something is lacking inside of a person's heart or head. They just don't get it. And without that internal change of mind and that internal change of the will, there's very little hope of lasting change. We can even see that in the parenting of our children, right? I want you to do that, and I, I was raised in a culture of, you do this, you do this, you do this, and I found myself stepping into place because that's what we do, but there was not a change of heart, a desire that kept things going. So this morning, how does this, how does this relate to Romans chapter 8 in our text this morning? Here's how. The reason that Romans 8 is so beautiful, so compelling, and so encouraging is because of the way that God invades. The way that God invades our lives and the way that God changes us from the inside out. That's how God works. He doesn't work from the out, changing our behaviors, and then ultimately if he can crack through the surface, he's going to change our heart. No, God, God does it by entering into us changing us from the inside and working its way out. And, and what I hope to show you this morning and in the weeks to come is the way that God changes our condition so that he can change our conduct. The beauty of conversion, the beauty of coming to Christ is that God changes 
our will. He changes our thinking. He changes our desires, which then leads to a change in the way that we then live. The, the gospel does more than just gives us a new set of behaviors. The gospel gives us a new set of, hear this, the gospel gives us a new set of desires. And isn't that far more beautiful and powerful? I don't want a new set of rules. I want a change in my heart. I want a change in my desires that is not driven by my power, but is empowered and driven by the Holy Spirit himself. So if you are a Christian, you have seen this work in your lives in one way or another, sometimes in grand ways and sometimes in small ways. Now, I know that you haven't seen it all the times like you wish you would see it, right? Man, I wish that this issue would really be changed, or I wish that this area of my life would be totally turned around. But at some fundamental level, the traumatic, traumatic beauty of Christianity is the heart change that God brings. And it is. Some of you are going, traumatic? That's kind of a hard. It is traumatic. It's a jolting is what it is. It's the shaking off of the old life and bringing about new life. That is, that is not just a casual change overnight. That is a trauma, Right? And so isn't that also what you pray for people who are destroying their lives, who are far from God, who are holding their fist and shaking it? You pray for some kind of traumatic beauty where the heart is ultimately changed. I, I, I know that even the people that I pray for, they are heavy on my heart. There's moments of, and maybe you're, you don't pray like that, but there's those moments of, oh. The moaning, the Lord, bring, God, would you just bring about? There's this moaning and grieving in your heart, desiring change to come about in their lives. The beauty and the burden of Christianity is, is to see God change the hearts of men, women, and children. We're praying for a change of condition, a change of mind, a change of life, not just behaviors. And folks, if you, many of you may have felt this, that to be a part of a church, the first thing that you have to change is your behaviors. I've got to clean up before I can be a part of this. And that's often kind of the things that we even hear of, of uh, a neighbor that we have a, across our parking lot. He, he sees himself, well, if I step foot into this building, the whole place is going to go up in flames. And we're going, step into the building, man. Because it should have been down, burnt down a long time ago looking at our lives, right? So, Last week, Easter Sunday, we kind of arrived at the, the summit of the book of Romans as we examined Romans uh, 8, verses 1 through 4. And we learned about the logic and the beauty of no condemnation. And I hope that you see that the beauty, 
that as, as we start looking at the beauty of no condemnation, it is more than just a, a theological heady kind of statement. It, it's a statement about your condition, who you are, and your position in Christ. It's just not a theological statement. It is a reality of who you are, your condition. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's true for you. And so when Paul says there is now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, he means that God has created a brand new reality in your life. Brand new. This, this is who you are now, not who you're going to become. Right now, today, this is who you are. It means that there is a new relationship that we have with the God of the universe, this holy and awesome God, such that everything about who we are and what we do has been changed. And that is why Paul not only talks about no condemnation, but he is also talking about, in chapter 8, walking in the Spirit. No condemnation and walking in the Spirit are absolutely linked. Absolutely linked. Since last week, so I've had some people say, so what does, it, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? I go, hold on, we're going to get there. And that question, I fear many of us are asking that kind of question in our mind in a way that is way too small and way too limited. It seems that we want to know what things are we to do that, that reflect walking in the Spirit. So tell me what to do, Paul. How do I do this? Right? And we're back at the same thing. Outward activities as opposed to a Inward heart change. We need to be careful that we do not limit walking in the Spirit to a list or a series of actions. Keep that in mind. Walking in the Spirit is not do this, do this, do this, do this, because that's a whole new set of legalities. Walking in the Spirit is a brand new condition for your heart. It's a brand new mindset, a way of seeing life. It is a brand new empowerment, if you will, before it is ever a series of actions. It always starts, walking in the Spirit always starts internally before it is ever external. So I think that Christianity is, at its core, a life lived in the Spirit. So what, to understand that, we need to kind of contrast, and that's what Paul is doing here in Romans uh, 5, 8, 5 through 11. He is contrasting in a, a little bit the difference between the flesh and the Spirit, right? Verses 5 through 8 is a contrast. Con contrasting of what these two lives look like. He takes up this explanation because, because of this statement in verse 4. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And verses 5 through 8 expand on this contrast. So keep in mind what I've said previously about the matter of condition. When you read words or phrases like those who live 
or set their mind or to set the mind on, you might initially think that Paul is giving some commands regarding actions. Actions that we need to embrace as soon as possible. Get, our, get all, all on board for these new sets of actions. While actions are certainly in view here, it's part of what Paul is talking about. These terms are dis, a description of contrasting realities or realms of living. He's describing what is necessarily the case for those who are in the flesh or in the spirit. Make sense? So he's saying, okay, let me, let me help you understand. And this is really important to keep in mind, or, if you, or you will miss the whole point of this text, and you're going to go home and say, I've got 12 new things to do. And that's not the, not the, the push here. It's not 12 things, or good pastors at least have three points of application, right? At least. And Paul is not telling you how to obey in this section. Rather, he is showing us that obedience is rooted in the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. That's where your obedience is rooted. It's not in your ability to accomplish something. Your obedience is rooted in the transforming work of the Holy Spirit who is dwelling within you, which creates new desires and new affections and new actions. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He births within you these new affections for, for Scripture, new affections for brothers and sisters in Christ, new affections for justice and mercy, new affections for generosity and living thankfully that's what the holy spirit does within you he births these he he's and from that you are rooted in a new desire to be obedient in other words to have no condemnation over you or to walk according to the spirit means that you see and that you experience and that you pursue absolutely everything differently. And the contrast could not be starker. First of all, you're going to see this first contrast. It's, it's a, a mindset. The, it, it's dealing with how people think. The person whose condition is marked by living in the flesh has a mindset that is set on the flesh. It's not that just he or she thinks about fleshly things or pursues fleshly things in the mind. However, that is probably true. That is only the observable issue, that they're pursuing these fleshly things. The real problem is a being issue, or as theologians like to say, ontological. Look that up. It's a being issue, an ontological issue. There is a, a fleshly mindset that is present in the person who lives in the flesh. His or her thinking is bad because there is a distorted, broken mindset. So earlier in the book of Romans, Paul said the same thing this way. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor give thanks to Him, because they're... Because Why? They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. 
Or, or Romans 3, 10 says, as it is written, none is righteous. How many? None. None is righteous. <laughs> no, not one, in case you missed it. No one understands. No one seeks after God. So the tragedy of a person outside of Christ is that his or her mind does not just think wrong thoughts. But there is actually an anti-God mindset that is central to who they are and what they do. That is who they are. Wrong thinking is the product of wrong being. So the believer's mindset is radically different. The, the condition of no condemnation has created within them a mindset which is characterized not by the flesh, but by the spirit. And, and so there's a different way of thinking, a different way of processing information, a different way of reading the newspaper, the dis- different way of listening into conversation, different ways, a different set of value systems that now dominates the believer's mind and his or her life. The believer has been invaded by the Spirit's agenda. By giving him or her new affections and new desires, there's a very different mindset. So the key to thinking right things is not only putting the right things into our mind, hear that, but also realizing that to have an anti-God mindset is to work against the very reality of who we are. We are in Christ. We are of the Spirit. We are to walk according to the Spirit who dwells within us and is rooting us with a new desire for obedience. And for some of you, this may be the place to think about what it means to really be a Christian. Really be a Christian. If you look at your life and you see a consistent powerlessness to change or an inability to stop your self-destruction, it may be due to the fact that you are not genuinely converted. That might be the case. You may be trying to apply spiritual resources to the heart that is completely unreceptive. That might be what's going on. You have not been, you may have tried not walking according to the flesh by walking according to you. And, And that is just another expression of the flesh. Coming to Christ means that you acknowledge your absolute bankruptcy. You have absolutely nothing to offer. Last week we talked about coming to Christ with empty hands of faith. That's what it means. And and we recognize, we acknowledge our, our absolute bankruptcy apart from Him and our powerlessness apart from the Spirit. We've got to acknowledge this. I can't do this. It is impossible. And coming to Jesus Christ means that you know you need a mindset change and a heart change that only He can bring. 
So there's this contrast between the mindset of the flesh and the mindset of the spirit, but there's more. Verse 6, if you look at it, identifies the second reason between the spirit and the flesh in regards to our future. The destiny of two classes of people are dramatically different. Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is, if you're reading it, what does it say? Death. Death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. It seems that Paul is talking about the mindset to the ultimate consequence of being in the wrong realm. It might be compared to a parent who says two things, two things to a very disobedient child. Many of you have said this. What are you thinking? Anybody? What are you thinking? And do you know where this is going to lead? Where this is going to lead? Elsewhere in Romans, Paul points out the contrasting uh, paths. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. (laughs) Contrasting, right? Or he says in Romans 2, he will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patient in in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. It seems to me that Paul wants to elevate our sense of urgency when we are considering the contrast between a life in the flesh and a life in the spirit. It's not just that the two realms and the two ways of living are different. He is saying they are dangerously different. Dangerously different. And this attempt, this text attempts to waken our hearts and our minds as to what is at stake. They're dangerously different. Does that, that should blow our minds when it comes to the need for evangelism. They're not just different. Uh, you're, you got a different set of morals, and I got a different set of morals. No, they are dangerously different. So don't make the mistake of being dismissive or minimizing the difference when it comes to the destinies at stake for people. Don't minimize it. It is urgent. So verse 7 concludes the section of contrast by giving us the ultimate reason, the ultimate reason why, why the destiny of those who live in the flesh and who have their mindset on the flesh is death. The word for there helps us to see the connection very, very clearly. The problem, as we will see, is related to their relationship with God. Being in the flesh and having the mindset of flesh is an issue because of their fundamental, underlying, rock-bottom opposition to God Himself. That's the problem. They're opposed not to you sharing the gospel, you opening your homes, and you being kind. They're ultimately opposed to God. 
That is the problem. A life in the Spirit is a life that is open to everything that God says yes to and encourages us to greater obedience and greater affection. But a life in the flesh says no. No. I'm opposed to anything. And notice the four things that Paul says about this problematic relationship for people in the flesh. Keep in mind that these are still in contrast to those who are in the Spirit. So by looking at this list, your heart should rejoice if you are in Christ that you are no longer in this position. Here's the first thing that God has saved you from. The first thing is there is hostility to God. This is the very basic problem at the core of people who are in the flesh. And it is the fact that they are set, set against God. And they are resistant to God. You have been saved from that hostility to God. Another thing that God has saved you from is a refusal to submit to God's law. This hostility expresses itself most evidently in a refusal to do what God's law demands. They do not want to believe what he says or obey what he commands. And we see this in, even in the Christian church around the world. They don't want to obey. They don't want to do whatever God says. In fact, they, there are some denominations and churches who desire to do whatever feels right here. But it's not the actions themselves that make them hostile. It is their hostility that makes them disregard and disobey Him. Another thing that God has saved us from is our powerlessness to obey. Those who are in the flesh are absolutely powerless to obey. They're unable to. They may give what looks like a little bit of fruit here and there. But ultimately... The condition of those who are in the flesh is so tragic because they are not only disobedient, but they are powerless to do anything about it. They might be able to do a little bit of uh, behavior modification in the short run, a few months, maybe a year, but after a while, it is just broken. They're powerlessly powerless to ultimately obey God with all their lives. And we're going to talk about this more in the next few months. But I want you to know here that God still holds those people morally responsible for their sin, even if they lack the power to do anything about it. The power, the, the person in the flesh is hostile, is rebellious, and powerless. Lastly, they cannot please God. They cannot please. And this is a, a tragic summary statement. These people are outside of God's favor. They are his enemies. And I know that is hard to say that those who don't believe in Jesus Christ are actually enemies of God. But it's true. They're not pleasing God. Their relationship with God is dangerously broken. Their mindset, their actions, their desires, their motivations are all in opposition to God. All of it. And left to themselves, there is no way for this to ever change. No way. This is 
a dark picture, isn't it? You're hopeless apart from Christ. You're hopeless apart from God taking hold of your will and changing it. Hopeless. And Paul wants to paint that picture in technicolor. Hopeless. Bankrupt. Powerless. Rebellious. He wants us to see the stark contrast between life in the flesh and life in the spirit. He wants us to deeply understand the difference between these two realms so that we can see the beauty of what is coming in verses 9 through 11. Paul wants us to understand the vital connection between no condemnation and the spirit as it relates to what it means, truly means, to be a Christian. In verses 9 through 11, Paul turns his focus away from the contrast of flesh and life in the Spirit. And he wants those who are in Christ to see the beauty of what it means to have the Spirit and to be in the Spirit. And for many Reformed Presbyterian mainstream evangelicals to the language of being in the spirit freaks you out. Who is this Holy Spirit and what is he going to do? Okay, I get God the Father. He's kind of just. He was the, kind of the Old Testament guy, right? right? And then there was Jesus. I got, got some really good vivid pictures of who Jesus is. I, I can see him in the Jesus Storybook Bible. I, oh, I know he died on the cross for me. He, his hands were pierced for me. His nails were pierced. His side was slashed. I, I get all that kind of stuff. He, he rose from the grave. I, amen. Yes. And he's ascended, seated with the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living. And the, I get all that. That's great. The Holy Spirit. Who in the world is this Holy Spirit? And Paul is saying he is central. The third person of the Trinity is central to your being a follower of Christ. And Paul wants us to see the beauty of what it means to have the Spirit and to be in the Spirit. Beauty. So we're going to ponder that beauty. What does the Spirit do? Verse 9 is fascinating and important. Notice the word however, which is meant to give a hopeful statement in light of the fact of the, ba- the past bad news. What was previously said about the realm of the flesh, hostility, rebellion, and powerlessness, and, and a lack of peace does not apply for those of you who are united in Christ. And notice that he uses the word you, making sure that it's more personal than anything that you've ever heard before. Previously, Paul said that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and for those who live according to the Spirit. But now there is a real personal you kind of focus. And it really applies to you. And what is he saying? The Holy Spirit gives you assurance. And what is this assurance for you? It is that believers are not in the flesh if the Spirit of God dwells in them. The assurance here is not just that the, Spirit, uh, the followers of Jesus are not in the flesh or that they are in the realm of the Spirit, but that the Spirit is personally, personally dwelling in those 
who are in Christ. Personally. Previously, we saw in Romans, the only thing that was referred to dwelling personally was sin or sinful actions. I see in the members, in my members, another war waging against the law in my mind and making me captive to the law of sin, and that dwells in my members. So, so for Paul to say that the Spirit dwells in us is startling, and it's an important statement. And so while sinners or believers may, may struggle with indwelling sin, anybody have indwelling sin that you struggle with? Yes, yes, good, be honest. What he is saying that is that there is a more powerful presence than your indwelling sin more powerful. The believer is now not left alone to struggle against sin in your life. So finally, verse 9 offers the assurance that to belong to Christ Jesus means to actually possess the Spirit. The Spirit and Christ are so linked together that you cannot possess one without the other. So Christ has achieved something for you, right? He has conquered Satan, sin, and death, and His righteousness has been imputed and given to you. Yes and amen, but not only that, we now have the Spirit who dwells within it and applies it to every member of my body and all of my mind. He applies it to me. So those who belong to Christ are given the Spirit as an assurance that our redemption has been completed and that Christ will return. So to have the Spirit is to have Christ. So just think what this means just for a moment. If you are a follower of Jesus, you belong to Christ Lock, stock, and barrel. You are His. Something about you has been irrevocably and eternally changed. Jesus sought you. He bought you. He saved you. And He is in the process of sanctifying you. Making you holy. And the basis of his sanctifying work in you is rooted and based on his possession of you. So becoming more righteous is not merely a matter of you working harder. Rather, it springs from the joy of knowing who you are and from allowing the Spirit to actually work through you. Your, your disposition totally changes, doesn't it? Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow with ceaseless praise. Man, isn't that what the life is? Lord, take it. I'm yours now. I'm not fighting against you. I'm not rebellious anymore. But Lord, I, I'm submitting my life to you with open hands of faith and saying, Lord, you have, you have bought me, saved me, redeemed me. You're, you're making me more holy. Take me. 
And that should bring us great, great joy. And because you belong to Christ and because you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there is freedom now, friends. There is freedom today and tomorrow and next week. Freedom to say yes to what is right. You have the power within you. For those of you who are going, I, it's just too difficult. I can't. It's too broken. It, it's, it, I, it's, it's impossible to repair. I can't, I can't deal with that indwelling sin, so I'm going to just hide it and deal with it in, in private. And, no, you know what? You right now have the freedom to say yes to what is right. Not because we have to, but because we want to. There should be a desire to say, Lord, I want to make this right. I want to be faithful. Take my life. Let it be. So if you are struggling with assurance today, my encouragement to you would be this. Rehearse the truth about who you really are. Who are you? You are in Christ. You are His. And then, Fill your mind with the beauty of who God is. And then three, start killing sin in new ways. In big and little ways. Hearing about and seeing the Spirit's work reassures us who we really are. What else does the Spirit do? Man, I got ways to go. I got to keep moving. Spirit gives life. Praise God. The second thing that we see here is that even while the body is still dead, he, he brings about life. So those who are in Christ possess the spirit of life. Some take this verse to refer to this final resurrection time, but I think ultimately it's an expression of what Paul means about the spirit of life. The tone of verse 10 is much more active and much more present. Verse 11 says, will give, will give life to your mortal bodies. But verse 10 says the Spirit is life because of righteousness. This, this seems to, to be something, something here in connection to the resurrection, but it is also experienced and lived out right now. You have life today. You are alive in Christ today. In other words, if the Holy Spirit's control and mindset takes over a person's mind or mouth or marriage or dating relationship or relationships in general or career, there, is, there will be life in it like never before. Never before. In small and incomplete ways, aspects of God's kingdom are brought to bear even in the midst of a broken world and broken people. That is what the Spirit does. He gives life to brokenness. But He also gives hope. The final aspect of the Spirit's role is related to hope for the future. Verse 11 links the resurrection of Jesus Christ to those who are in Christ by virtue of the presence of the Spirit. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, you who, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So what's he saying here? The focus, like in Romans 8.3, turns back to the Father and the Father's powerful activity. 
The Father raised Jesus from the dead by the Holy Spirit, and this is the powerful person of the triune God who dwells in believers, reassures them that they belong to God, and reminds them who will defeat death. And He, the Holy Spirit, is already present in their lives. Therefore, as believers look to the future, they can be filled with hope. You can be filled with hope, even in this world. You can be filled with hope because the defeat of death has begun with Christ's resurrection. And it is inaugurated by the coming of the Holy Spirit. So no matter how bad, how difficult, or how broken things become in our world, in your relationships, in your marriage, in your workplace, how, no matter how difficult they are, we know that there is a coming day when the wrath of God is coming, but also when the breath of God will give life to our dead and buried bodies. If the Spirit gives life now, just imagine what it will be like when he gives life to all those who have died in Christ. You think it's miraculous that he changes us while we're still alive? How many millions have died in Christ? And what is he going to do on that last day? Oh. Imagine that moment when the broken earth gives up her dead. Imagine that. And those resurrected saints will give clear evidence that death is swallowed up in victory. Can you imagine? Part of me wants to make it all the way to the end to witness that. I want to see that. So walking in the Spirit, what do we, what do we make of the Spirit's role in our life? I hope you can see in Romans 8, 9 through 11 that the Spirit is vitally important. I hope you see the difference between the flesh and the Spirit, uh, the, or the centrality of the Spirit. But there's something I want and pray will happen. Being led by the Spirit is about aligning our hearts with the will and the desires of the Spirit. And that happens individually, but friends, it also happens corporately. It's, it's embracing a change of mind, a change of heart, a change in the outlook about ourselves, a change about how we look at the world, the temptation and sin. Walking in the Spirit is not just a list of things to do as it is a vision of who we really are. We're alive by the Spirit. Being a Christian is a life by the Spirit, in the Spirit, and through the Spirit. You need power for today and for tomorrow. You need hope for today and for tomorrow. You know what? It's available. Do you believe? Do you? Or is it just up here? Life in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, is to be so controlled in small, minute minutiae and major mega kind of ways 
that our lives reflect a Christ-likeness that is stunning and otherworldly. So my prayer is that as you submit to a life in the Spirit, friends, that those around you will be in shock and in awe and that there is a curiosity about what is going on with so-and-so. And that will open doors for conversations to share the gospel and to see new life in Christ. That is my prayer. Let us pray. Father God, I pray that you will help us to understand and help us to embrace the reality of life in the Spirit, of what it is to be, have a new reality of being. And Lord, that we will be more obedient and have greater affections and desires and changes of mind because of the indwelling Spirit within us. And Lord, that that will also propel us to be greater worshipers of You, God. Greater worshipers, greater missionaries, compassionate parents, compassionate spouses, greater friends. Lord, would You change us in those rock-hard places still in our lives where there is indwelling sin. And may we say yes to the power of the Spirit in our lives to crush those areas. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.